have your Bible, I would invite you to turn now to the Old Testament. This is the reading on which the sermon will be based today, Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, To balance our long New Testament reading, I have a short Old Testament reading now. Uh, Just the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 61. Yeah, no problem. We all right? (laughs) Yep. Here we go. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. This, by the way, i got to say this before I read it. This is what Jesus read at uh, his first sermon at his hometown synagogue in the Gospel of Luke. This is the sermon he preached. So the title of this sermon today is The Sermon Jesus Preached. Here it is. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or grace and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. One of the things that Stacy and I do as this time of year approaches, we, we have this tradition every year of beginning our round of Christmas movies. Uh, we, we do it really early. We, we've already started, y'all. I'm, so, I'm sorry to say. And you might also be sad to know that the favorite kind of Christmas movie we like are the Christmas rom-coms, the romantic comedies, you know, the, the kind that are on like Hallmark they're terrible movies. They're all exactly the same. But Stacy and I, for some reason, it just gives us the Christmas feels, especially Stacy, I think. But, but I, I'm there with her. And I noticed something this year as we were starting to watch some of those. And, and, and there are some good ones out there, but, but mostly they're cheesy. But they all tend to have the same basic idea. Someone in the story realizes they're missing something. Right? They're missing something deep in their lives. And usually it has to do with relationships. They're missing that key relationship. And then through a series of events, you know, all the plots are the same. They find that piece, that puzzle piece that just clicks right into that missing thing. And you know, at the end of the movie, there's just this satisfaction of a missing thing being supplied, right? Now, as I watched those and I noticed that this year, I thought, you know what? I think a lot of us, not just at Christmas time and not just relationally, but in all areas of life, we live with a constant sense that something's missing. Don't we? Whether you consider yourself a believer this morning or whether you're watching in or you're here and you don't consider yourself a believer, there's often this feeling of, wow, there's just something. I don't know what it is, maybe. Maybe I do know what it is, but I just, if I could only get that. Well, Isaiah here in in these first four verses of chapter 61 is trying to help Israel see both that they are missing something 
and he's trying to show them what they're missing. And it's not what, you know, it's not kind of what you would think it is. It's not, notice it's not a relationship, a la Hallmark movies. Uh, It's not a financial boost. Uh, It's not a better job. It's not a better house to live in. It's not uh, kids who behave. It's not a revived marriage, Uh, although all those things are wonderful. Notice what it is. It's a servant who has been anointed by God to anoint you. That's what it is. You say, huh? What does that even mean? Anointing. Well, well, let's talk about it this morning. Jesus picked this passage to be the text of his first sermon. Whether he picked it or not, we're not sure. Uh, It was the scripture reading that day in the service. Just like we do in Jewish synagogues, they read at least three or four scripture readings every service. And this happened to be the one that day from the prophets. And it says, Jesus stood up, read this, and then he began to preach his sermon. And here was his sermon. It was really simple. This scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, the thing that everybody's missing, the thing Isaiah was trying to tell Israel they're missing, guys, it's standing here in front of you today. Now, I cannot preach the sermon Jesus preached because I'm not that guy. I am not Isaiah 61, 1-4, but you know what I can do? I can preach the one who preached the sermon Jesus preached, and that's what I intend to do today. So if you look at your bulletin, there are three things I want to answer today for us. Number one, what is anointing? What, what even is that? If that's what we're missing, what is it? Number two, why was Jesus anointed in a special way? And number three, what happens when we share his anointing? What is anointing? Why was Jesus anointed? And what happens when we share in his anointing? First of all, we've got to know what it is. Look at verse 1. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me. Uh, Notice those two phrases. The Spirit of God is on me because he has anointed me. And uh, this is an example in the Bible of parallelism. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Let me tell you. Parallelism is a poetic device where the poet says the same thing twice in different words back to back just to help you understand more fully what he means. The Bible uses it all the time, especially if you read the Psalms or the Proverbs or the prophets like this one. Here he says, it's the same thing really on both sides. To have the Spirit of God on you and to be anointed by God are the same thing. In fact, God had used all throughout the Old Testament the symbolism of anointing in order to symbolize the giving of the Holy Spirit, the giving of God's Spirit to equip us to do what God has called us to do in life. Now, uh, you got to maybe know what anointing is. You might not know exactly what happened, but throughout the Old Testament, uh, when someone was being set apart for a special task, say to be a king or a prophet or a priest, someone would take oil, olive oil or some other kind of oil, and they would pour it or sprinkle it or daub it or rub it on that person's head, sometimes maybe even over their whole body, as a ceremony to symbolize that person was being marked by God, chosen by God, set apart and equipped to go be the king, to go be the prophet, and to go be the priest. The Spirit of God was on him. Uh, Now, God didn't just pick this, I don't think, at random, this whole thing about oil being put on the body. People put oil on their bodies all the time back then, not just in religious ceremonies. 
Uh, oil was kind of like an ancient perfume, or deodorant maybe is better to say. Uh, they would put olive oil on their face to cover over smell. Uh, they would put olive oil on the face to make it shine. It was kind of like a moisturizer, a, a, a lotion before there was lotion. And so people who had means especially, almost every day they would apply oil to themselves. And God picked that, that basic everyday event when someone would wash their face and rub on oil. He picked that as a symbol of what it means to receive the Holy Spirit. Now think about that this morning. How does putting on deodorant and moisturizer and perfume, think about how does that symbolize appropriately what the giving of the Holy Spirit to human beings is supposed to be? Can you think of anything? Are we dirty? And do we need cleansing? Do we stink? And do we need covering? Are we made to shine and yet have become dull? Are we made to be alive and yet we've become dry and crusty? And so the Holy Spirit, y'all, the Holy Spirit is the gift of God to take those who become dry and crusty and stinky and dirty and to once again bring them back to full shine so that we can stand before God the way we're supposed to. And so Isaiah says, this is the very thing that people are missing in their lives. We were made to shine under the blessing of God. When God uh, made human beings in the garden, you know, there's that famous phrase, they were made in the image of God and in his likeness. And that's the whole point behind that. You know, it, it's almost like we are the moon and God is the sun. We have no light of our own like the moon, but God has all the light. And yet if we position ourselves, if God positions us right at the right angle, our lives are perfectly uh, set up to shine back the light that God shines on us. God's work of restoration in our lives is that very thing. It's to clean up our surface. It's to reposition us in the right place so that we're not hiding from God anymore, so that when God's light and his blessing shines on us, we might in turn go around and shine to other people. This morning, I want you to understand, life has tremendous purpose. Tremendous meaning. Um, people sometimes criticize Christianity and they say, I don't believe in Christianity because it's all about sin and it's trying to make people feel bad and it's so negative about people. And you know, that, that is true in a way, but I think it's true in a good way because who doesn't recognize there's something wrong with folks? I mean, let's just get that out of the way first. We all know there's something wrong with folks. And when I say folks, I mean folks, me and you and people like us. We all understand that. And yet it's wrong in another way because the Bible is the original humanism. <laughs> the Bible is the original human affirming book. And that Christianity is a human affirming religion. Why? Because God made you. You have a tremendous purpose. Your purpose is not merely to live a certain amount of time on earth so that you can make a name for yourself. Y'all, that, that would actually really be sad. And what's called humanism in our culture pushes that 
But really, I would say that's devaluing humanity. If we were made to shine with the oil of God's presence, living to build my own personal kingdom is a ripoff, right? In comparison to that. If we were made to be like the moon reflecting God's glory, then simply living life to make more money, that's a ripoff. I was made for God. And you were made for God. Isn't that amazing? A lot of times we think, you know, you know, especially if you're 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 under a certain age, you know, if you're if you're on the younger end of our group this morning here. You've probably been it's been drilled into you at different times and in different ways that your purpose in life is something that you discover by yourself and then you your job is to bring it out and become what you want to be. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what you're supposed to believe? No. I mean, think about the word purpose. Uh, According to, I'll give you a Merriam-Webster definition of purpose. The reason for which something was created. The reason for which something exists. Now think about it. How could it really be a purpose if you just invent it? If a purpose is the reason for which you were created. Follow-up question. How many of you created yourself? How many of you birthed yourself? Zero of us. I mean, zero out of every 100 people birthed themselves (laughs) or or created themselves. Isn't that right? Those are solid statistics this morning. What does that mean? That means if we're searching for purpose and meaning and value in life, if we're trying to find a reason to say humans are valuable and should be treated well and we should have hope in life, that our life is not just random but we're here on purpose, the only place to look is to the one who created you because purpose is the reason for which he created you. And this passage says, here's what it is. That you might share in the anointing of God. That God's spirit might come on you so that you might shine again. That the dry and crusty parts of your heart might once again come alive. And that you might stand underneath his smile, underneath his approval. You say, well, why do I need that? If, If I approve of myself, isn't that enough? Of course it's not enough. You acknowledge that every day when you get dressed in the morning. And you stand in front of the mirror and see how it looks. Those of you who are able to do your hair still, I'm jealous of you. You spend time doing your hair and you stand in front of the mirror and you get it just right. Is that just so that you will be pleased with you? No, because that's why you don't do it on Saturdays. (laughs) Or during the pandemic, you didn't do it. Because you know the reason you're doing that is you're trying to check, are other people, is somebody outside of me going to be pleased with me? I want you to know there's a human cry. There's a human cry that just wants someone to validate. You know why that is? You were made for anointing. That's in there, not just because of the peanut gallery that you're seeking to please with your hair. That's in there because in your heart, God placed eternity there. And placing eternity there means you were made to hear from him. Here is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Here's my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. 
And what this scripture is proclaiming is there's going to be this servant that's going to come along who's going to stand up and say, the Spirit of God is on me, and he's anointed me. Why? Look, at, look there at verse 3. So that my people would receive the oil of joy instead of mourning. I'm anointed so that my people might be anointed again. So they could find their purpose. This morning, think about that. There is something missing in your life. But I want to tell you that something missing is not something you can give yourself. It's not something a relationship with another person can give you. It's not something that a job or money or anything else can give you. It's something only God can give you. When Jesus stood up that day and preached that to the synagogue, people were amazed at what he was saying. Do you want to know, do you want to know how Jesus' sermon ended that day when he preached this text? He didn't stand at the back door and everybody shook his hand and said, good, good sermon, pastor. That didn't happen. What happened? They got together, pushed him to the edge of town where there was a cliff, and tried to throw him off. They tried to throw him off the cliff. Think about why that is. Made for God, and yet man, obsessed with ourselves. And so secondly, I want you to see why Jesus was anointed. It's because you and I lack the anointing we were made for. And so Jesus had to stand where only he could stand. To do what only he could do to, re to redeem people like us. They tried to throw him off a cliff after he preached this sermon. It proved the fact that he needed to preach this sermon. And he needed to be this person who received God's anointing above measure. And so look at what it says. Actually, there are... Seven different, um, I'll use another grammar word this morning, seven infinitives. You say, what's an infinitive? Uh, th that's just where you have a verb in its most basic form. To proclaim, to bind up, to proclaim. Do you see all those? There's seven of those, to do something words. And each of those seven really kind of paint a picture of what Jesus' mission is. You know, they say that having a mission statement is one of the most important things you can have as a company or a business or an organization, even as a person. I mean, I know some people who have family mission statements, which I think is kind of a cool idea. I've never had one, but it seems like a great idea to have a family mission statement that you write down. And usually they're, they're filled with infinitives. We exist to do this, right? To treat people right, to make shopping a pleasure for all those who come in, to whatever it is, to educate, to... Worship, you know, there's all different kinds of mission statements. When Jesus stood up that day in his hometown synagogue, he says, look at these seven to-dos. This is my mission. This is the very reason the Father, my Father, sent me into the world and has given me the Holy Spirit to do these seven things. So let's look at them really quick. First of all, to proclaim good news to the poor. Literally, it says, to preach the gospel to those who are poor. You see, Jesus came not to preach the gospel to those who feel like they have it all together. Why is that? You say, well, well, don't those people need Jesus too? Yes, they do. But those who feel like they have it all together aren't ready to receive good news from Jesus. Because to them, life already is good news. It's already fine the way it is. 
I want to tell you this morning, the only way that you won't understand and you won't embrace Jesus is if you believe you're already fine. The number one way to position yourself this morning to receive Jesus into your heart is to recognize you're not fine, you're poor, you're completely impoverished, and the words that Jesus stands up to say, I've come to preach good news to you, should thrill your heart. I've come to proclaim a victory on behalf of the forgotten, on behalf of those who know that they are forgotten, left behind, and poor. Isn't that amazing? Then he says, secondly, to bind up the brokenhearted. And there, you know, obviously is a picture of a, like a doctor or, or a nurse, someone who's uh, attending to someone else's wound. It's only here the wound is unseen. The wound is in the heart. Some of you may feel this morning very brokenhearted. And there may be any number of reasons why this morning you come with a broken heart. Yet listen to this. Jesus says, I have come into the world to bind up broken hearts. To pour on oil as a medicine. To pour on uh, uh, salve to take the pain away. I've come to bind up those wounds and to actually bring them to full health. Isn't that amazing? Maybe as you hear that, you begin to see why uh, people in his hometown synagogue wanted to kill him after the sermon. Because it takes a whole lot of humility to admit, I'm poor and I need that guy to preach good news to me. I'm brokenhearted and I need that guy to bind me up. I can't bind myself up. I can't heal my own wound, but that guy can. That's the one thing his hometown folks weren't willing to admit. Then notice what he says next. To proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for prisoners. Don't we often feel like we're chained up, locked up? Uh, This is one of the most basic things that sin does in your life. It promises you freedom. It says, hey, you're going to live a life whatever you want to do. You're you're not going to listen to a god or or some ancient book or other people. You're going to just do what you want. That's going to be free. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I've done that, it doesn't take very long to recognize that freedom is really a ball and chain. It's it's a prison cell. And it says Jesus came into the world to, to be anointed so that he might anoint us with freedom. To break us out of that jail cell that we've put ourselves in by our own sin. Verse 2, he came to proclaim, this is the next one, to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace or favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Notice those two things, favor and vengeance. Grace and justice. Both things are equally true. Both things are on God's agenda. You can't deny one or the other. You can't deny grace and just be all about justice. You can't deny justice and just be all about grace. You've got to have them both. And Jesus Christ came to preach both. In fact, the gospel message to be preached has to include both. If you don't know God is a God of vengeance, why do you think you're going to need grace? But if you don't know He's gracious, how in the world are you going to ever come near to one who is vengeance? You've got to have both of them together. But notice a little detail there, which I just I love it. The year of his favor and the day of his vengeance. Isn't that good? 
I don't even know if I need to explain that. Maybe I do need to explain that, but just think about that. Vengeance is a priority of God, but it's as if God focuses on it for a day. If, if you will. Grace is a priority, and it's such a priority, he focuses on it for a whole year in comparison to the one day that he's focused on vengeance. It's just as the Bible says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. God is far more gracious than we are sinful. God is far more excited, if you want to put it that way, about showing mercy and grace than he is to enacting his justice and vengeance on people. In fact, the scriptures say that, you know, it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of sinners, but yet he is pleased to offer his kingdom to his people by grace. You know, I mean, there's a mystery to that. I want to acknowledge, obviously, there's a mystery in that. But nevertheless, let's just this morning think about how good it is that God's vengeance is one day, his mercy is a year. I love it. To comfort all who mourn, Jesus says. I came to comfort the mourner. Those who, who are not only brokenhearted, but they just can't get over what they've lost in life. And every one of us have lost in life. Some of us have lost more than others, but we've all lost. And sometimes that mourning can linger and never, sometimes it never fully goes away. And yet it says here, Jesus was anointed to comfort mourners, to speak peace to them, to speak encouragement to our hearts when we're just weighed down by the fact that life comes and goes. People come and go. It's amazing, isn't it? Verse 3, the last one. He came to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Do you see that reversal? Jesus reverses the curse. He's anointed to reverse the curse. Sin, your sin, creates a life of ashes and dust and, like I said, dry and crusty. The oil that came upon Jesus flows down upon us to make those things that are ashes crowned with beauty. The crown of beauty there is the crown that was worn not only by the priest, he had a crown of beauty, but also brides and bridegrooms at their wedding day were crowned with beauty in the ancient world. They had a beautiful crowns put on their head. I'm going to turn your, your funeral day into a wedding day, is what he's saying. Your funeral day into a wedding day. Instead of mourning, I'm going to give you the oil of joy, the oil of my presence, face-to-face relationship with God, the heavy spirit of despair that crushes people. I'm going to turn it into a new garment, a fresh set of clothes that you can put on to praise my name. Why was Jesus anointed? Jesus was anointed to do everything for you you could not do for yourself. That's the sum of it. Just like in the Old Testament, prophets were anointed. To speak God's word. Notice how many of those seven things are about speaking. To proclaim good news. To proclaim freedom. That's a prophet work. 
We're totally without God's word in our hearts. As, as Jesus said to the religious leaders in John 5, we read it earlier, you don't listen to God. You don't have the word of God in you. You read the scriptures, but you don't come to me. The word of God is in your ears, but it's not in your heart. And this passage says that Jesus came, the anointed prophet, to put the word in your heart. It's amazing, isn't it? The question this morning is, are you listening to Jesus? Are you taking him at his word? Are you bringing it into your life? Priests were anointed in the Old Testament. And notice how many things there that are priestly in those seven things. To comfort the mourner, to be alongside those suffering, to to give them a garment of praise, to bind up the broken heart. Those are priestly, gentle, caring things, hands-on The question this morning is, are you receiving the priestly care of Jesus in your life? Are you resting in it? Are you depending on his work? Kings were anointed. And there are some things here that only a king could do. Proclaiming good news, uh, releasing captives from prison. That Only a king can do that, right? I love the word in verse 3, bestow. Uh, To me, bestow has this official kind of quality to it, you know. Um, you give something to a friend, but a, a king or someone in, in authority bestows something upon a person. It's like a fancy way of saying it. And here it's the king bestowing in the most regal way from his riches into our poverty, placing on us what only he has in himself, what we don't have. If he's a king, are you submitting to him? Are you listening? Are you depending on his work? Are you submitting to him? This is the sermon Jesus preached. I can't preach it to you like he preached it. All I'm doing today is saying, listen to him preach, because Jesus is here, just like he was there that day. Are you going to throw him off the end of a cliff at the end of this sermon? Or are you going to receive him into your heart? Those are basically the only two options. Uh, Don't spend time saying all this stuff about, yeah, Jesus is just all right. He's cool. I'm cool with him. He's cool with me. You can't do that with Jesus. You either got to throw him off a cliff or you got to receive him into your heart as prophet, priest, or king. Because Jesus makes astonishing claims. He's either an idiot, a madman, or he's God. Decide this morning. Throw him off a cliff or welcome him into your heart with praise and with trust. Now, lastly this morning, What happens when that anointing of Jesus begins to spill over onto us? I'll keep it simple again, but look there at verse 3 and 4. They will, when they're anointed with oil, which it said in verse 3, when they're anointed with oil, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of God's splendor. What happens uh, when we receive God's anointing? We begin to be transformed. We begin to become like him. An oak of righteousness planted by the Lord for the display of his splendor. We begin to shine. One of the things we say here at Greater Hope is we want to be a a church that shines in the city of Mulberry. That shines in the city. This is exactly what we mean by that. When someone comes to Jesus, they're forgiven, they're brought into a family, but that's not the end of it. Jesus is continuing to work by his Holy Spirit to change you, to make you a different person so that you look different, you act different, you become an oak of righteousness. You become a person who displays the splendor or the beauty of God in your everyday life. Wherever you're at, wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you live, you display that beauty. 
So that, verse 4, look at verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They'll restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. On my heart is the fact that these, these words in verse 4 don't just describe Israel after the exile. I think they describe human community all over time, all over space. They describe Mulberry. A place devastated, ruined by sin, devastated for generations. How great would it be if God transformed people at Greater Hope Church to go out and restore, renew, rebuild? Not for their own glory, not for the sake of their own, you know, feel good about themselves, but for the sake of God's splendor. Because Jesus' beauty is just too beautiful to keep to ourselves. And so we got to go tell it, we got to go show it everywhere we go. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? Now you say, okay, well, the, well that, that means I don't have to worry about all the, you know, I don't have to worry about the details of Christianity. I just need to go do good. That's what Christianity is about. No. No. Look at what it says. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. What's the difference between a building and a tree? I mean, I, I like seeing wonderful buildings, beautiful, great architecture put together well. I was in St. Louis this summer for a church meeting, the General Assembly, and there's beautiful architecture in St. Louis. Didn't realize how beautiful that place was. But you know, maybe I'm just a country boy at heart, but better than walking through a city, I love walking through a forest. Because of the difference between buildings and trees. Buildings, you can kind of see how it came together. You can understand it with your mind. You can figure it all out. People got together, made a plan, and brick upon brick, they built that thing. And it's amazing. It sometimes can put you in awe that they did, but nevertheless, you can explain it. When you walk through a forest, even people who study trees their whole life can't understand exactly how life comes from life, comes from life, comes from life, comes from... And it just springs up from the ground as if by magic. And Isaiah is saying here, when the anointing of God is restored to you through the anointed one, through the Messiah, through Jesus, the way that we are able to become rebuilders, restorers, and renewers in our everyday lives, the way we're able to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, is not by building a building ourselves. It's by being planted by the Lord. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. So you're going to have to break it down for me more. Okay, here we go. You cannot fix your own life. You cannot take yourself from being ugly in sin to beautiful in righteousness. You can't do it. You might as well this morning give up. Go ahead and give up right now. You can't do it. It's like a forest that grows. Not a building that you build. And the forest grows by the power of God. A seed is planted. When, you, when, when the Puritan John Owen said that Jesus was anointed as the head of the body so that the oil would come down from the head and cover every part of the body of Christ. 
When you believe, you become a part of that body and the oil flows down over you. And Jesus did that so that a new power would be resident in your life to change you. A power that does not come from your hands or from your strategies. This is the reason why you can't say, I'm not going to have anything to do with religion or God or all these kind of crazy you know, things about the Bible and practices. I'm just going to do good. You can't say that because you're actually not going to be able to do good according to God's definition. And remember the whole thing about standing in front of the mirror doing your hair. It's not what you think about your life that matters. It's not what your neighbor thinks about your life that matters. It's what your maker thinks about your life that matters. You cannot be good by his definition on your own. You must have a new power resident in your life, an anointing. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has transformed me. I want all of us this morning to think about this deeply. What's missing in your life? Hmm? What's missing in your life? I hope I've convinced you. I can't preach the sermon Jesus preached, but I'm telling you, he preached it. And it's true. It's true this morning as much as it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is what you're missing. And you're missing him as an anointed one for you, but you're also missing that anointing that needs to flow over into your heart to transform you from being a selfish person to a self-giving person. To be a rebuilder instead of a terror down. Instead of being part of the ruins, you become a renewer. I want that. I don't know about you, but I want that. I just want us to stop and ask the Lord to do it for us. Because honestly, even as I can't preach Jesus' sermon, we as a church can't preach the sermon of Jesus. Only Jesus can preach the sermon of Jesus, right? All that, all that stuff about being rebuilders, restorers, renewers, yeah, we're instruments in the Redeemer's hands, but we're not the Redeemer. And so unless God sends forth his Spirit upon us and anoints us, Nothing can happen in our lives or in this city. Let's pray together.